You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for uh, Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR Breakfast on Saturday. And today we're going to do a little bit of a trawl through some of the things that I've come against throughout the week. Uh, first up, we're going to revisit the Gumaroi, uh, uh fight for their lands against Santos uh, as the uh, LNP kick the door as they go out. They've been, uh, of course, uh, opening the doors for more um, gas drilling, fracking, uh, that sort of stuff in the oldest uh, continent in the world that is so fragile in terms of environment that uh, these, if uh, you're a religious person, you'd say they were committing a thin against the country. But anyway, the Gumaroi have been fighting and uh, I've got a little report uh, outside the Native tribe, Title Tribunal in Phillips Street, Sydney, and it was uh, sent to us by the wonderful Vivian from the Climate Action Show, which is on 3CR on on Mondays, 5pm. Fantastic show. Uh, And uh, this was uh, taken outside the uh, Native Title Tribunal on the 8th of April because, of course, the greedy frackers want uh, to be able to... uh, do whatever they like for their own economic, uh, uh, I don't know, they they want lots of uh, here now profits and uh, of course that means that they want to undo the native title as uh, uh, provisions so that they can go in and terrorise the uh, First Nations people and destroy their land. Uh, so anyway... These were speeches outside that particular tribunal because it's important that people don't forget what's actually going on and what's really at stake. Uh, Later on, we're going to hear from Adam Bant, the leader of the Greens, uh, on Friday. Last last night, in fact, I strolled down to the sea and uh, went to the South Melbourne Lifesaving Club uh, because there was a jobs forum put on by the local Greens candidate. They believe they've got a very strong chance of getting another uh, Greens candidate into the House of Representatives alongside Adam Bant in the McNamara electorate. And uh, it was interesting to hear some of the things he 
said about jobs and how the Greens consider this sort of area of things. There were a couple of announcements he made during that speech that um, it was a very intimate little arrangement. Not a lot of pe- there were people there, and it was a you know very cosy affair. Um, but he announced a couple of things that I hadn't heard before, and I thought you might be interested. It's not long, but it's it's interesting. Uh, Kevin uh, ploughs through the week with a uh, unerring eye, and uh, we've got a chat with Don Sutherland about some of the key issues around standard of living and uh, pay that are the bread and butter issues for Australian workers. You're on 3CR Breakfast. Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon and help keep communities strong. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2022. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. Join Free Palestine Melbourne in remembering the Nakba at a vigil at the State Library at 12 midday on Sunday the 15th of May. Nakba means catastrophe in Arabic and commemorates the displacement and ethnic cleansing of more than 700,000 Palestinians from their homes to create the State of Israel in 1948. The Nakba continues with refugees from 1948 still living in refugee camps and more Palestinians being displaced as Israeli settlements continue to be built on stolen Palestinian land. The event will include naming and acknowledging many of the towns and villages destroyed by Israel. Nakba Day Vigil, midday, Sunday, the 15th of May, on the steps of the State Library of Victoria. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Yeah, terrible news coming out of that area of the world, uh, as per usual. The uh, shooting death of an extremely important uh, household name journalist uh, working for Al Jazeera. Uh, She was uh, killed by a single-shot sniper bullet and the, uh, as she was, and other journalists were covering events and uh, the Israeli army merely said that it was the Palestinians who did it. It's uh, pretty grim stuff, pretty grim stuff. Uh, Moving right along, um, as I said, uh, we've got our own problems here in Australia as well, similar on the same vein. Gumaroi were outside the uh, Native Title Tribunal in Phillips Street, Sydney, on the 8th of April. Uh, uh, This is a report that's put together by uh, the wonderful Vivian uh, Langford from the Climate Action Show, which is heard every Monday, 5pm at 3CR. You'll hear Paddy Gibson, who is the moderator representative from the Gomoroi people, and uh, uh, David Shoebridge, MP, and ET representatives. This was a call to arms and support coming from the union movement for the Gomoroi's defence of their land. There have been important times in Australian history when the First Nations people on the ground have said, this is sacred land, we don't want it dug up. And it has been trade unions together, standing together and say, if the real owners of the land say no, we will not work on this project. We will not lift a finger on this project. I'm talking about Nook and Bar. 
I'm talking about the uranium mining policy that stopped Mary Kathleen and other uranium mines, where workers actually stopped work to stop those uranium mines. Wharfies stopped work to block the shipment of uranium. That is the power we need to build, comrades. That is the power we need to build. And we have a statement that we're all promoting together. You can go on the website gomeroynar.org. That means Gomeroy Strong. And I'll just read a little bit from it for you. It says, instead of gas-fired dispossession, we urgently need to be strengthening First Nations rights and investing heavily in a just transition away from fossil fuels with large-scale employment in renewable energy and sustainable development. This project cannot be allowed to proceed. And if the Native Title Tribunal will not defend Gomorrah rights, then we pledge to support a fight that will stop Santos, Moriton and Perrottet on the ground. That's the commitment we make. And we now have, as endorsements to this statement, all of the education unions here in New South Wales, the teachers, the NTU, my union, right? We have the Electrical Trades Union have endorsed that statement. The Construction Division from the CFMEU have endorsed that statement. The Maritime Union have endorsed that statement. The United Workers Union have endorsed that statement. Amnesty International have now endorsed that statement. Human Rights Law Resource Centre and many other human rights organisations. So we are growing in power. We are growing in power and if Santos think they're going to get away with this, they have another thing coming. Our next speaker, a young Gomeroy woman, there's a youth group, Gamilaroi Next Generation, that really put this on the map. The first time I really realised how serious this issue was was when they called a demonstration here in Sydney after the initial approval. And it's been wonderful to see the resistance continuing to come from young people. So Tallulah Brown has a statement to read for us today. Thank you. I want to thank Auntie for the welcome. And I also want to acknowledge the country that we're on today and acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging. Uh, my name is Tallulah, I'm a Gomorrah and Southwest Asian person. I'm with my small brother, <laughs> Jez. Um, we are one of the many founders of GNG who are fighting against Santos. And I have a statement that I'd like to read from Ian Brown, another member and Gomorrah person who uh, isn't here today. So I'm gonna read this statement out for you. Yama. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge country from Gomorrah to Gadigal and thank the Gadigal mob for allowing us to hold this rally today. I pay my respects to the old people who have cared for this land since the first sunrise. I pay my respect to our elders, both past and present, knowing that without their strength and knowledge, we would be weakened in our defense of country. I'd also like to acknowledge our youth, the future leaders and the reason why defending country is so important, to ensure that their inherent rights to remain connected to place, to country and culture is protected. I'd also like to acknowledge our comrades and allies who have supported Gomorrah throughout this fight since the project's initial inception and who continue to stand alongside Gomorrah like those speaking here today. I'd like to apologize for not being there in person as I am back home on country, but I'm there in thought and spirit. You all are gathered today to stand in solidarity with Gomorrah against the Narrabri gas project and Santos, who are seeking to a future acts determination within the native title tribunal, essentially an act extinguish our native title rights. Shame. 
in affected areas of the Pilaga. Santos are utilizing the legal systems to do exactly what it was meant to do, further dispossess First Nations mob. The Pilaga is a place to which hold cultural significance to Gomorrah mob. Sorry, I lost my spot. <laughs> Uh, Gomorrah mob. It is a place which provided sustenance for our mob by an abundance of readily available flora and fauna, but it was and is still a place which holds cultural knowledge and ceremonial significance, not only for Gomorrah, but neighbouring nations as well. Allowing this project to continue will have a direct impact on our ability to continue cultural practices within the Pilaga and will disrupt any further cultural revitalization occurring on Gomorrah, which is something we cannot allow. This project also runs the risk of contaminating our Great Artesian Basin, one of the largest underground freshwater sources in the world, which provides a number of communities throughout New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, and the Northern Territory with fresh water. Water is a part of country, therefore we have the obligation to protect it. We cannot drink or eat money. The fossil fuel industry and the politicians which govern this penal colony, so-called Australia, need to acknowledge the responsibility that we have to protect country as we cannot continue down this destructive path. Instead, they are ignoring the pleas from mob and environmental experts to pursue short-term monetary gains at the expense of current and future generations. This is significant hearing relating to the native title and Aboriginal rights to lands within New South Wales. If a decision to allow a project to go ahead is made, it sets a precedent which could impact on other nations' native title claims due to the infrastructure needed to support the project. So we need all nations to come together and support us Gomorrah in this campaign. This is the first instance where a specific report scientific report relating to climate change and the impact a gas project will have on the atmospheric environment was in included as evidence. Gomorrah have said no. Us, us as traditional owners have said we do not want the Narrabri gas project on our country. So now it's time for Santos to yane and to get the hell off our country. Yalu. today how, how weak the native title system is in this country. It's like having a gun to someone's head. They say either you do a deal with us or we go to the tribunal and bang, we take your rights away from you. Right? That's the equation that exists in this so-called native title system that's really set up to dispossess. And the brave Gomorrah, they stood up and they stared straight back and they said no, overwhelmingly voted no deal, no deal to Santos. So now, now it's our responsibility, it's everyone's responsibility. Do First Nations rights mean something in this country? Yeah. If the Aboriginal people say no, what does it mean? Yeah. No! If they say no, what does it mean? Yeah. No! And we're going to fight with everything we've got to make sure that that no means no. We say sovereignty never ceded. Let's make it real. Let's make it mean something. Let's get behind and make sure this project is buried. That's the task we've got ahead of us. Our next speaker, as I said, wonderful to see so many flags flying here from the ETU. We have Michael Wright, Assistant Secretary of the Electrical Trades Union. Thank you.
from the Acting Secretary of the Electrical Trades Union of Australia. And uh, I'd like to acknowledge we stand on the land of the traditional owners of the uh, Gadigal people. Friends, um, let me be crystal clear. The 60,000 members of the ETU who were her electricians and energy workers across our country do not support this project and will not support this project until it has the support of the traditional owners of this land. Now, we know in the ETU and we know as a country that the climate is changing. And we know that fossil, f fossil fuels are a thing of the past. Yeah. We are transitioning to a new economy. And it is already ETU members who are amongst those who are bearing the brunt of this. So let me take a minute to tell you about what we do need. What we need is a government and industry that looks to the future instead of building pipelines to the past. Yeah. What we need are governments and industries that work with unions, that work with communities, and most of all work with traditional owners to deliver jobs and projects and industry that will deliver for community, that will deliver for workers, and that will deliver for the traditional owners. What we do not need is in the 21st century to still be building fossil fuel projects that will wind up as stranded assets that get uh, and see the traditional owners get shunted aside as has happened all too often in our country's history. Now, we stand at the cusp of a brave new future. There are enormous opportunities for our country ahead in terms of offshore wind, in terms of solar, in terms of renewables, in terms of the battery of the nation in South Australia. But what we do not know with this future is will we have a government that works with this? Will we have industry that works with this to deliver the future for communities and workers and traditional owners? Or will we once again, once again, have this enormous, these, our opportunities stripped away and money go off to corporate profits? Now, comrades, I don't have much more to say today, but beyond the make clear that we need a pipeline to the future, not a pipeline to the past, and the ETU stands in solidarity with the Gomorrah people. More power to you. The money is there for the transition we need. They are committing hundreds of billions of dollars to build nuclear submarines, to build hypersonic missiles. Is a hypersonic missile going to deal with the rain bomb that keeps get dro getting dropped on us, you know, and making it and so people are losing their houses? An insane situation that we have that the climate catastrophe gets worse and worse, and these people are planning more fossil fuels, more dispossession, more destruction. We say enough, we're going to fight back and we're going to win the alternative industries, the investment that the ETU and the other unions are talking about. That's the quest that we've got ahead. With First Nations justice at the centre of that movement. And the next speaker I'd like to invite up, They've been such a wonderful leadership on this climate issue. They've given us all the kick up the arse we need to get back out on the streets in big numbers. That's the school strike for climate movement. Let's have a cheer for school strike for climate. And young Natasha's here to speak to us today to bring a message of solidarity from the school strikers. Thank you, Natasha. Again, I want to acknowledge we're on stolen Gadigal land and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name's Natasha and I'm a 17-year-old school striker um, based on Darug Country in Western Sydney. And School Strike for Climate is a global grassroots organisation representing millions of students in dozens of countries around the world. And on behalf of School Strike for Climate, I'm here to 
States, but students in Australia and around the world are fully in solidarity with the Gomorrah mob, who are the rightful owners of their country. The Gomorrah people have never ceded sovereignty, not to the Australian government and definitely not to a despicable neo-colonial gas company. And so we have a message to Santos and the Australian government. Touch one, touch all. We will not stand by while Santos attempts to strip away native title. We stand in solidarity with you no matter what the court decides and we fight alongside with you. SSVC also have a common enemy in Santos because as well as attempting to strip away native title, which is despicable, they are also seeking to increase to massively expand the gas industry and further increase Australia's climate pollution. Meanwhile, on a daily basis, we can see and feel the escalating climate disasters from mega floods in Lismore to and the North Shore, the Northern Rivers to the bushfires that we saw back in 2019. Our government is telling students not to strike, yet only a few weeks ago, our schools were shut because of the floods. A couple years ago, we couldn't go to school because the smoke was so bad and we could barely breathe. The climate crisis is here and young people are furious at the government. We're furious at a system that is allowing Santos to even attempt to strip away native title, to even attempt to, to drill and mine stolen Indigenous land. Keep it short. So today we stand behind Gomorrah Mob and stand in solidarity with you to stop this project, no matter what the court decides. SS4C and young people are so inspired and acknowledge the work that Indigenous people have been doing to lead this fight from the beginning. And quickly, School Strike for Climate also called another strike on May 6th. And again, we're there to stand in solidarity with Gomorrah Mob. Natasha, we all need to be there on the 6th of May. Friday the 6th of May, Town Hall at 12pm, right? Are we just going to leave it up to school students to be leading this fight and striking? Or are we all going to get organised and walk out of work and join them 6th of May at Town Hall to strike for the climate and stand behind the Gomeroy, right? We all got to stand up now. Very, very serious times. The disasters are getting worse and these people just keep pushing ahead. We will fight for the alternative. Our final speaker before we um, hear from Budley to, to, to bring it all home here today, our final speaker is David Shoebridge, um, who's a member for the Greens in the New South Wales Parliament. David. Oh, cheers, Paddy. Look, I want to acknowledge that where we are, that parliament over there, this court here, all of us are on Gadigal land and pay our collective respects. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land. But I also want to pay respects to the students who keep coming out in solidarity on climate with First Nations peoples. And I've got to tell you, I'll be there with them on the 6th of May, whether or not the police want to arrest us for having a protest. And let's all join with them on the 6th of May. But when you stand with Gomorrah here, outside that institution, whether it's the Supreme Court or the Federal Court or the National Native Title Tribunal, and you spend the time to talk with First Nations peoples, you know that when they go into those institutions, courts created by the state that invaded their land, takes their kids, attacks their culture, poisons their water, 
when they go into those places, First Nations peoples expect to be disrespected and disempowered and lose the struggle. Well, we are not going to let the Gomorrah lose this one, will we? Because let's be clear, the National Native Title Tribunal's main job is to destroy native title. That's what it does. About 98% of cases run by First Nations peoples trying to protect their land, their country, the 60-odd thousand years of connection with this continent, about 99 times in 100, that National Native Title Tribunal ignores the pleas of First Nations peoples and delivers for the fossil fuel industry and the mining industry and the development industry. Well, well, we have a collective obligation, yes, to stand in solidarity with First Nations peoples here, but also to tear down those institutions and finally have laws that respect and implement First Nations rights to land, water and culture. That's part of the struggle as well. So to the Gomorrah people, whether it's Bubbly or Sue Ellen or, or Ian, who have stood strong and rejected the one-off bribe from Santos to give away their land, their culture and the climate, we say thank you and we stand in solidarity with you today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But let's also be clear about what this is. This is the first step in what will be an ongoing struggle. And, and if the Gomorrah win this, and they've got good, solid legal advice from one of the strong, when? When the Gomorrah win this? And they have good, strong legal advice from one of the leading First Nations senior councils who are in there taking the fight up. When they win it here, Santos will want to appeal it and then Santos will want to go to the next Attorney-General, the next Federal Attorney-General. And if the Gomorrah win, they'll go to that next Federal Attorney-General and say they want to have the Attorney-General turn it on its head and veto it and give Santos a gift, because that's how the law operates. Shame on that. So today is a challenge. I make this as a Greens MP, Greens candidate in this upcoming federal election in the Senate, of course. But I make this as a Greens MP and I make it in solidarity with First Nations peoples. The Greens will never allow the next Attorney-General to overturn a win by the Gomorrah. And we need the same commitment from the Labor Party to say if they get into government, they will respect Gomorrah rights, they'll respect the decision and they'll back in the decision. So thank you again to First Nations peoples who teach us time after time how to live in harmony with this continent, how to not produce firebombs and rain bombs, but instead to live with 60,000 years of knowledge. To the Gomorrah people, we say thank you and we will always stand with you. Hard yards, they voted clearly, they've said no. We all know what we've got to do to build this struggle. There's a petition you can be circulating, gomorrahnar.org. Get your organisation to endorse it. We need big, big numbers on the street. 6th of May for the next climate strike. Gomorrah will be at the front. Speaking. The new Climate Action Radio Show will surprise you. Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. global warming. And so you'll hear voices from all around Australia and overseas that are taking all types of climate action, whether it's stopping coal and gas, whether it's building a new model of society, or whether it's just sustaining you in the grief you may feel about the climate destruction we're facing. 
And in that spirit, here's a poem by Rumi. Stop, take a breath, for you are drunk, and we are at the edge of the roof. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. You're listening to 3CR Radio.
3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. Join Free Palestine Melbourne in remembering the Nakba at a vigil at the State Library at 12 midday on Sunday the 15th of May. Nakba means catastrophe in Arabic and commemorates the displacement and ethnic cleansing of more than 700,000 Palestinians from their homes to create the State of Israel in 1948. The Nakba continues with refugees from 1948 still living in refugee camps and more Palestinians being displaced as Israeli settlements continue to be built on stolen Palestinian land. The event will include naming and acknowledging many of the towns and villages destroyed by Israel. Nakba Day Vigil, midday, Sunday, the 15th of May, on the steps of the State Library of Victoria. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Breakfast with Annie, and uh, as I said earlier in the show, if you were listening, I uh, I, I am not uh, deliberately... Um, uh, throwing up a whole lot of Greens uh, voices uh, in this program to endorse them. Uh, it was purely uh, that a variety of different I- issues and events have happened over the last week that uh, having have had uh, that sort of tone. And uh, last night I went down to a local event um, in McDamara. Uh, the Greens feel that they've got a pretty strong chance of uh, getting uh, a representative into the House of Representatives alongside uh, Adam Bant, the uh, Greens leader, who is, of course, the uh, House of Representatives federal um, uh, uh, candidate for Melbourne, the seat of Melbourne, and, in fact, is the incumbent. So... uh, you know they're very excited. There's a lot of excitement around the idea of either the Greens or and the um, many independents that uh, might be called sort of a beige shade of liberal. Maybe they're all the um, not all of them, but a lot of them might be the refugees from the uh, uh, steroid right-wing Liberal Party that uh, we're now experiencing or have been for over a decade in Australia and uh, that same sort of tone, that right-wing tone that has been emanating from Kosh's uh, United States and uh, Boris Johnson's uh, UK and not to mention India uh, Modi's India and, of course, uh, the uh, crazy, murderous uh, governments that uh, come out of the Philippines. It's a tone. It's a tone, I say. But anyway, I, as I said, I went down to a jobs forum uh, that was put on by the local Greens candidate in McNamara last night. And um, this is what Adam Vance said about what the Greens believe are the key elements to any jobs policy. 
We've been campaigning now for a couple of years as the Greens and more intently in the lead up to the election to say that there's two big crises that we're facing. We're facing the climate crisis and an inequality crisis in this country. And in many respects, the cost of living crisis is a manifestation of the inequality crisis that is gripping us and has been gripping us for some time. And what I want to suggest in part tonight, and following on from those um, amazing insights from Dylan, is that uh, the answer to one can, in some respect, be the answer to both. It's not necessarily going to be the answer to both, but it is possible to have an approach, and this is what we are putting forward in this election, something that will address both. And I want to talk about that in the context of work. Um, And one of the things that uh, like to start, I mean, we understand the climate crisis, we understand the urgency of the climate crisis and what we need to do to fix it. It's simple, it's a question of political will. But on the question of the inequality crisis and how it plays out um, on the front, uh, on the work front, one of the interesting questions I think to ask at the moment that is being looked at in the election but only obliquely spoken about, and this week we saw the closest we've come to actually a real debate about a real issue during the course of the election when the topic of wages came up. And it's an interesting question to ask, to, uh, to think about, is that why is it that if unemployment is so low, why aren't wages going up? Like, surely any basic economic analysis tells you that when the supply of something constricts, then the price of it goes up. And so why is it that I mean, not only in Australia, but in other countries, some other countries as well, we've had times of periodically very low unemployment in the last 30 years, but wages haven't gone up. And so why is that? Um, I want to suggest that it's been, and this is critical for discussion about the future of work, and those questions that Dylan raised and points to so, um, his finger on so well about how we ensure that people are going to have decent, secure, well-paying jobs into the future. Because if we don't fix these underlying problems in whatever industries people are working in, the risk of them being insecure and not well-paid um, grows. What I want to suggest is that it's been a deliberate design feature of the last 30 or 40 years of the system that wage growth should be kept low. And there's been a number of ways that they've built that into the system. But I think you can argue um, persuasively that in fact goes back to the accord, um, back in the, the accord in the 80s, uh, when government, and this is relevant because you know the new um, Anthony Albanese says he wants a new accord if he becomes Prime Minister or a new version of it, they got all the groups around the table, the employers, these, uh, the unions and the government, and said, right, we need a new social compact to deal with where we are. And one of the things they built into it was that and they said, and they were really explicit about this, and this was a Labor government, they said, we've got to stop wages rising too fast, right? We can't have wages rising too fast. So we need to design a system that will make that happen. And that fundamental feature has not been taken out of, I would argue, our industrial relations framework since then. And in fact, what's happened since then is we have that whole era of John Howard where it became harder and harder and harder for people to come together in their workplaces to demand better rates of pay. But one of the, th- one of the other things that happened during the course of that time was we saw the proliferation of what are now called non-standard forms of work. So whereas the norm might have been back then much more so that the norm was you had a full-time ongoing job, a secure job, what you might call a permanent job, but I think you could call it ongoing, right, because nothing's necessarily permanent.
but certainly an ongoing job. Um, that got radically changed. It's the point where now in the university sector, which a lot of people like looking outside of it and dealing with this through lived experience would think is the bastion of place of tenured academics. Only one in three people have ongoing employment like, as a brief in that tenured, that tenured sense that people would think about. Like the proliferation of casual work, contract work in particular, has grown there. Um, and we conducted an inquiry into this in Parliament, and I remember one woman coming up and saying, Look, I've been doing research in the same unit, effectively the same unit of the same university for the last eight years, and I haven't been entitled to a day of sick leave in all that time. Because I've been like a contract slash casual employee for all that time, just put on rolling contracts. And when you think about what that does to your life, the inability to get um, a mortgage, the inability to like, affect people's decision about when they're going to have kids, start a family, that has just grown, right? That has grown. But we've also seen the incursion when we talk about non standard forms of work, but people who aren't employees, and just think about the Uber driver, right? The, the, um, you, and this is one of the things that when you hear Scott Morrison say, oh, well, casualisation hasn't grown. Like, the share of the casualisation of the workforce hasn't grown. A, I think he's often wrong, but B, what that doesn't take into account is all of those people who aren't counted as employees now because they're counted as independent contractors running their own business, like the, the person who brings you your food when you call Uber Eats. They're counted as independent contractors. And they're not entitled to a minimum wage. Right, they're not entitled because they're not classified as employees. They don't get those protections. So we've seen not only increasing casualisation and not only increasing use of contract labour, but we've seen the increasing use of people who aren't even called employees at all. Right? And um, as someone said to me the other day when I was talking to them, we're not only seeing the uberisation of food delivery, we're seeing the uberisation of aged care now. Like you have people working in aged care where um, they're, they're contracted in and contracted out and their, works, their shifts will be set up in a way that they might do two hours at the start of the day and three hours at the end of the day. And basically your whole day is gone, like from 8am until 7pm, but you've actually only worked five hours during that and you might accrue next to load, no leave or superannuation from that and you might have been called a casual employee or even a contractor for a big part of that. So this method of work of not only casualisation, not only contract, but calling people things other than employees is just creeping in and becoming increasingly pervasive. And um, that is a big part of the reason that wages aren't growing. And it's also a big part of the reason they're hitting behind the unemployment statistic that the government loves to talk about is another thing that's just as important in some ways, which is underemployment. Like when you ask people the next question, like you might have some work, because it might be that two-hour age care shift that you managed to pick up that way, but have you got enough work? Have you got enough work to make ends meet? And are you getting paid enough to make ends meet? The number skyrockets, right? The number, the number effectively triples depending on which age group that you're looking at. And so that is people saying, I am working. Or, I either can't find a job or I can't find enough hours of work. And so when you build that in together with all of those other things, plus the fact that it is really, really hard for people to come together in the workplace and there are so many barriers now to people doing things that 30 or 40 years ago would have been an acceptable way of organising the workplace, you start to understand why, even though unemployment can be low, wages aren't growing, right? And, but the cost of everything else is. So it's a big problem. So what are we going to do about it? And let's do this two things that we can do. 
One is to change the rules around work. Um, we are proposing, as the Greens, and have been proposing for some time, that uh, we should change the law to require a presumption that all jobs are ongoing unless there's good reasons to demonstrate otherwise. Okay, so to shift it. So to shift it from being just, it's basically graphic rules and whatever gets decided from you know, whoever the, the business or employer wants, shift it to say, well, there are some situations in which it's going to be legitimate to have casual work. If you're only opening your ice cream stand for three months a year, then it's appropriate to just have a casual worker for that period of time or a short-term worker. But there are other situations where it's manifestly not, like that woman who worked in the university department that I was saying. And so if you change the presumption in law to say the presumption is ongoing unless you can show good business reasons as to why it has to actually be a casual or a contract job, because maybe you've only got a contract for a year, so that's legitimate. But if we shift that, that would go a long way to do it. So reverse the, um, reverse the presumption. We also need to tackle this rise in non-employee kinds of work, so the delivery drivers, what we're saying is the best way to deal with that is to basically say there should be a presumption put into our industrial law that all workers, however they're classified, should be, as a starting point, entitled to the basic same minimum wages and conditions. Right? So you put that in and you kind of remove the incentive for the Ubers or the Deliveroo's or whoever, sorry if I'm uh, Deliveroo might not be one, they might be one of the ones doing the right things, but you know, the, 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 those big behemoths, they would have no incentive to try and get around the law, because however you classify them, you've got to give someone the same issues that you remove the incentive to have that race to the bottom. We also need to lift minimum wages, which has again been a topic this week. In the UK, they have a thing called the Low Pay Commission which has as a rule that the minimum wage has to be at least 60% of the full-time medium wage of workers. And what that does is it reduces inequality and ensures that people don't fall through. Um, we should do the same here, right? Um, if Boris Johnson can do it, then we can do it. And so we'll be pushing for that uh, in the next parliament. But one of, the, one of the other things that I want to do before I sort of finish on my final point about how we can tackle both the climate crisis and the inequality crisis at once, um, is it's critical is that we need to lift the, what people are paid who aren't in work. Because one of the big problems that we discovered during the pandemic, like during the pandemic, Scott Morrison realised, oh, actually with everyone losing their job, a million people losing their income, that million people are about to find out just how badly we've been treating people who don't have a job. And so they had to double the rate of new start job seeker, right, to above the poverty line. And one of the things that that showed is that not only that people have been living in poverty for a really long time, but that that is also one of the reasons that wages haven't grown. Because if your choice is between doing a few hours a week, getting a bit of work as, an, as a delivery driver, or living on you know less than forty dollars a day as it was then, or forty dollars a day as it was then, that just puts so much pressure on you. And like this idea that over the last 30 years what we've done is push risk downwards onto people. But a big part of that is because if you don't, if you step out of the workforce, you find yourself in massive, massive poverty. And we've got a, that shouldn't be the case in a wealthy country like ours, so we're arguing to lift that to the poverty line to $88 a day. So how is it that we can solve, so as well as changing the rules of the game to make it fairer, 
um, how are we going to tackle both the climate crisis and the inequality crisis? And, and I'll end on this, um, and it comes back to Dylan's point. But we've spent the last little while travelling around the country talking about our, our plan, um, calling it powering past coal and gas, which is a plan to get out of coal and gas, get out of coal in the next 10 years, um, and uh, do it in a way that supports workers and communities during the transition. Um, there's two things that are, there's quite a, quite a bit in there, but there's two things that are really key to this, I think, that go some way to addressing these security crises that we've seen. One is that we're offering, we're saying that coal workers need what we're calling a job for job guarantee, where you say, you, you say to people, you say to a business, if you come in and set up your business near a coal community, or if you take, you don't even need to do it near it, but if you take on someone who used to work in coal, that's the test, and you promise to pay them the wages that they had before, we, the government, will step in and pay half the wage bill for you for 10 years. And what that does is encourage businesses to come in and set up near these places, or using the skills and the strengths of the people who work in these places, because they know they're going to get some government support for the next 10 years. And um, it also then says to the coal worker, you are guaranteed not to lose any money as part of this transition. Right? We... um, the writing is on the wall for coal. We have to get out of coal, but coal and gas workers aren't the enemy. We need to look after them during the course of the transition. And it's been really well received. And um, you know, be happy to talk in a moment about how you know we've, I've been at meetings like this in Hunter Valley or in Gladstone and had talking about exactly that, and it's been really well received. The second bit of that is. A weak solidarity brekkie team listener when we discovered, no, no, more so, had our knowledge reinforced that the lowest of low-paid workers are lowest of low-paid because they are so ignorant, it's their own fault. And the filthiest rich or the filthy rich are so filthy rich because they are so knowledgeable, so aware. Highlighted this week by this hoo-ha about wages. The poorest of the poor thinking their wages should be at least keep up with inflation. The wise, filthiest, rich, richest of knowing that would increase inflation, destroy the economy, force caring business out of caring business. Their wisdom shared or adopted by Big Supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo, who echoed their concern that workers can't keep up with inflation if they keep up with inflation. Finally, we hope we may have discovered the cause of slow wages growth, which has so disturbed bosses and caring employers, their government, for so long, but unable to find a solution. Wages. Wages are a barrier to wages growth. Something that naive Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony Albinguzi just can't comprehend, as he reckons the lowest of the low paid should receive a wage rise in line with inflation. Otherwise, workers continue to fall further behind, he said, ignorant of the fact that this would cause the whole economy to fall behind. How naive to think that as the price of everything else rises, the price of labour should rise. The irresponsibility of suggesting workers should not fall behind inflation, which thankfully they have been for ages, therefore not selfishly hurting the economy, was underscored by two experts on these matters. The Lord Rupert of Wapping economic guru Terry Pukan, who warned... All Benuzi's utter ineptitude, which was at first just extremely disturbing, has become outright 
dangerous. That's how serious it is. Thank goodness for Terry Pukan and his caring employer, Lord Rupert, and the nine network, oh, sorry, network former Spencer Street, Fairfax, Troubler, Aussie capitalist review expert, Phil Carry on Capitalism, called it a pay gaff. He believed Elbow had realised what a massive gap it had been to call for wages to match inflation shortly after he said it. So when two deep-thinking, knowledgeable experts like Terry and Phil are so distressed, we know we're talking serious. Showing just how evil the evil unions are, how lazy and avaricious workers are, and how naive is Anthony Albinguzi. But all this has given me a brilliant idea to save the delicate flower that is the economy long term. See, workers have to go to the fair work troubler was he no longer work choices just looks like it con mission to beg for a pay rise and everyone agrees 5.1% would destroy the economy. So... Let's establish a fair profits troubler was econ mission where caring employers have to beg for a profits increase to ensure profits stay below 5.1%, else they too would destroy the economy. Brilliant, don't you think? <laughs> Terry Phillip, what do you think of my brilliant idea? We asked our omniscient experts. When they had recovered enough to gasp a response, they said something like, utter ineptitude, a gaff. Have you no concern for the shareholders, for the hard-working boardrooms? They spluttered, and I realised instantly my brilliant idea was quite stupid, and then I saw a headline that banks' profits are expected to hit $11 billion and realised immediately why poor, caring employers can't afford to pay lazy, ambitious workers an extra dollar an hour. Scummo said he may have been a bit like a bulldozer. Well, we can agree with the dozer bit, but he will not be a bulldozer if re-elected because times have changed. Uh, how have they changed, Scummo? People don't want to vote for me. Uh, but bulldozer or not, he also said he always treated opponents and those who oppose his views with dignity and respect. I have great respect for the low-life, turncoat, miserable bastards. He displayed the Christian dear baby Jesus love that dominates his every action and thought, keeping in mind that in Scummo's version of religion, the richer you are means the more God blesses and loves you, the poorer, the more she, he unblesses and unloves you. Well, he in Scummo's religion on which he promised he would attempt to bulldoze or, no, no, gently pass the Freedom of Religion bill that ran into a bit of a dead end during the last government, but would not include removing the Freedom of Religion to bulldoze or, no, no, gently point out their failings to gender non-conforming kids. These sinners must see the error of their ways, and people of religion must be protected from them. He highlighted the great role religion plays in modern society. Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle displayed his commitment to political balance by attacking the so-called Teal candidates for opposing so-called moderate caring business class party pollies who have displayed their moderation by putting up with and supporting Barnacle and his lot all these years. Barnacle was so distressed because they would force the caring business class party to swing to the right. Barnacle, the lefty, to the right. And well, wouldn't we notice the difference? And haven't we enjoyed the moderate views and actions of Josh Friedem icebergs and Dave Slammer, the Palestinians? Well, Josh and Dave both know how evil the Palestinians are, selfishly wanting a homeland of their own. Worse, many wanting it back where it used to be. 
and Tim will back the back capital son who told the poorest of the poor they would suffer irreparably if we tax the rich. Tim of the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, a body whose moderation and common sense we have all come to appreciate. But the national security threat from these teal traitors got even worse, because then Barnacle Chorus, the minister for being offensive and train-killing Constable Peter Duffer, by informing us evil China is using a chain of, you know, like military bases to begin a process of, like, you know, encircling Troop Luozzi to intimidate us. Both sides of politics have a role to play in order to protect our children, grandchildren, and, like, you know, all future generations in how we deal with this. It will not be assisted by a parliament of independence see those bloody independents, well, anyone who is not in either the caring business class, hayseed and sheepshit or socialist parties, doesn't give a damn about our children, grandchildren and all future generations. Well, they claim they do by suggesting climate change will hurt our children, grandchildren and all future generations, but Barnacle knows the greatest danger from climate change is these untrue Aussies trying to stop it. His record on fossils shows his deep concern for our children, grandchildren and all future generations. And thanks to Barnacle and that lot's policies on climate change, there mightn't be too many future generations to worry about anyway. Perhaps we can give him some reassurance by reminding him that our very, very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world, already has bases encircling evil China. Good encircling, not evil encircling. And in one of those totally obtuse barnacleisms, ask why voters did not like Scummo, there's an obvious assumption in that question, but for the sake of, let's assume some people might not like Scummo, hard as it is to believe, Barnacle said, you don't have to like your dentist, you just have to believe they are competent, because when they have got that drill in your mouth, you want to make sure they hit the right tooth. <laughs> no, listen, I've, I've got no idea either. Just, just thought I'd mention it. He certainly had a big week. Look, OK, OK, I'll admit my idea for a fair profits troubler was con mission was a big mistake, utter ineptitude, a gaffe, but thank goodness we have got the fair work troubler was he no longer work choices just looks like a con mission or aged care patients in the Southern Cross care string of homes in South troubler was could have suffered irreparably this week. See, the 1,700 evil union staff it kindly employs and so cares about, and their evil union thought they had protected action. That small opening in which irresponsible workers and unions can take industrial action. Well, they did have the right to protected action, but they didn't have the right to protected action, because Southern Cross took them to the No Longer Work Choices Con Mission, arguing a five-hour industrial action would put residents at risk. One claim by the workers in the dispute was understaffing, which the caring employer used against the workers, and what do you know? The bench agreed, despite the fact that Scummo and the team have appointed 100% caring employer commissioners since 2013, knowing they would be totally unbiased. The action would increase the workload for non-union members, the bench ruled. What a sensible, balanced decision, showing that protected industrial action means protecting responsible workers who choose not to join an even evil union. Finally, think we can cover this next item without any comment whatever. It unconsciously satirises itself. 
an event publicised on telly the other day, fighting for mental health, boxing challenge. <laughs> Good morning. Yeah, that's Kevin. And uh, Kevin Healy taking the week down, <laughs> trawling through it. Uh, you're with Annie on uh, 3CR Breakfast, and uh, we're going to finish up the program. It almost... It's unbelievable how ideas and themes seem to gravitate towards themselves without any planning. I had a chat with Don Sutherland, who's now moved down to the top of Tasmania, and uh, about what's on his mind. And uh, funnily enough, a whole range of the things we've already been talking about were right in the centre of uh, Don's thoughts. So, good morning, Don. How are you? I'm really, really well, Annie, as usual, and, uh, well, these days, and uh, looking forward to our discussion. G'day to all your listeners, and uh, I hope I can make some sense of a couple of big things that are happening at the moment. Well, I, I hear that you've been door knocking and doing lots of electioneering. Yes, and uh, I have been. Uh, well, not I wouldn't say lots, uh, because my uh, some a couple of my aching joints don't permit me to do lots anymore but uh, I have been helping out a bit and it's interesting some of the conversations I've had I've learned for example uh, I haven't actually seen them but um, uh, as your some of your listeners would know I'm now living in uh, Tasmania in a place called Beauty Point and there are tent cities I have been told by a couple of people now in Launceston uh, because uh, of a shortage of low uh, of income uh, of housing for low income people um, well, that sort of uh, leads us into one of the things we wanted to discuss today. Let's let's talk about the annual wage review, which is something that you are particularly interested in, and it's always about uh, the lowest paid people in Australia. Yes, well, lowest paid people include people who are on wages, as we understand them, but of course, all those are also dependent upon uh, unemployment and disability benefits and things like that. Uh, which are also, you know, at poverty, at below poverty line levels. Uh, but I think we should just start with the uh, with the annual wage review, uh, particularly because it's now, uh, you know, the, there is a public debate about what the Fair Work Commission should actually do as a result of uh, Anthony Albanese coming out and saying that uh, he agrees that if there was a 5.1% increase to match the increase in past inflation, right? So it's about inflation that's already happened and been reported on. It's not current inflation. So 5.1% catch-up for the past, he said, yes, he agrees with that, which I think is a positive thing. Um, he could have gone further, maybe, but that, that may, you know, he's made a political judgment from his own point of view that he's not. But yeah, 5.1% uh, as the minimum has put what's going on with the Fair Work Commission's annual wage review into the public arena. Uh, behind the scenes, um, in regards to the process of the re review, uh, it's economists and statisticians at 10 paces <laughs> because the Fair Work Commission is putting up all the uh, supplementary submissions or submissions in reply, as they're called, as they have been coming in from the various parties, that is, the unions, employer bodies, uh, state governments, and so on. Just, uh, just a quick switch back to the electrical, electoral dimension of that. Uh, the Greens, through Ant, uh, uh, Adam Bant, 
have already put in a submission uh, in the first round of submissions, and their position basically was that the annual that the minimum wage to be should be taken to sixty percent of the median wage, and that means that that would raise the minimum wage, uh, which is currently twenty dollars thirty three an hour. That would increase uh, uh, quite significantly, and uh, that uh, would increase to being marginally above or on uh, uh, marginally above the poverty line. So now, and then, uh, so they 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 are the two sort of you like electoral positions, and that's drawn uh, Albanese's uh, statement has been defined by mainstream media as being incredibly uh, controversial. Uh, and has been misrepresented in some quarters, especially by the government, as being, you know, that's their actual position that they uh, are seeking that the uh, Fair Work Commission should do, and, and the governments must never do that. Well, that's not true anyway, because there have been uh, previous years in which uh, both federal and um, state governments have put a number to their claim. And so this nonsense from... Uh, various spokespeople for the Liberal National Party in the election context that governments should never put a number on their point of view uh, is just, that's just not true. And uh, uh, John Buchanan in the uh, Guardian today, I see he's picked up on that as well, but uh, there not being many critical thinkers in journalism world, uh, not, no one else has, I don't think. Well, someone, so, someone put a really fantastic uh, meme on Facebook where uh, a, a, someone who was uh, a pithy uh, commentator said that uh, people who agree constantly and put forward the points of view of the ruling class are not journalists. They're actually courtiers. <laughs> yes, well, I think... Um... I think in some cases that's true. There's a couple of characters who you could define as courtiers really easily. That guy, Philip Corey, who writes for the Australian Financial Review, and you see him on on uh, uh, um, the Sunday morning program and so on. And he's always interviewed. He's, he would definitely be in that category. Is there a picture of him in the meme? <laughs> no, no. No, it was an American um, uh, Labor um, uh, uh analyst from the past well okay so well it's a fair enough comment i think and i think there's a lot of truth to it i think there's a lot of working journalists behind the scenes who are not like that at all they just do you know they're just wage earners doing an honest job and sometimes um you know their voice pokes up and you get some insights and so on but most of the mainstream journalists are well they're that they're mainstream journalists writing talking about things like wages and profits in a very mainstream way, which for many of them means keep profits a secret. They're not a thing. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's something else that came out uh, in discussions this week with me, uh, for me, was uh, in the past, the, the uh, wages uh, uh, component of any business was always considered just the cost of running a business. Now, apparently... Uh, workers are a charity and it's the profits that count. Um, well, it, it is, in, in capitalism, that's uh, um, whether you call workers wages, but it's certainly true that in capitalism, 
It is profits that, that counts. And I must say, as a critic, critic of the capitalist system, uh, that's true. I think that's true. And I think it's true in, a, in misunderstood ways, but nevertheless, uh, that's another thing where we get into economic, uh, you know, sort of deeper economic theory. But, uh, you know, we do live in a capitalist system, and in a capitalist system is a profit system. But but it's but it's it's why the working class has to actually fight and be in struggle because otherwise, as this particular liberal national government has basically been outlining, is that uh, insecure work uh, and um, low pay is what workers should expect. Yes, yes, that 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 is the mentality, or if you like. The you know the value or conceptual system that everyone is meant uh, uh, meant to uh, imbibe, so to speak. But your point about it being a question of struggle is, of course, the most important point. And in fact, the willingness of workers to struggle in a class-orientated way is one of the three most significant determinants of the standard of living. If the class struggle is slack, loose, or incoherent, or non-existent, then the standard of living is going to go down. Because then the other two major determinants have their way, which is uh, the supply and demand for labour, and of course also the character of the rules through which the capitalist state or governments uh, discipline workers to um, uh, prevent them from being effective. And, of course, that's what the Fair Work Act these days is all about, uh, as we have discussed on numerous occasions. The, so let's turn to this sort of struggle. I think in the immediate sense, the only way in which the wage of struggle is taking place um, uh, seriously is through a few enterprise bargaining disputes, a couple of them of great significance, and then through, only through, there is no industrial strategy at all associated with the ACTU's now 5.5% claim to the Fair Work Commission. And uh, there's nothing, it is only sort of arguments in the public sphere through media releases and so on. Those two or three enterprise bargaining disputes I'm thinking about are, of course, all about aged care service workers uh, and also uh, childcare workers and uh, teachers. They're the big enterprise yeah, they're, bargaining They're types. the big ones that are going very, on. Very, very important. There's a couple of uh, council workers that are fighting back as well. Yes, that's true. Bus operators in particular in Sydney. That's an interesting one. Now, the, just to go back to, so let's go back just for one or two comments, extra bits of information for your listeners about where the Fair Work Commission is at. It has now accepted what are called the submissions in reply. And then uh, there is, I think, one more opportunity for that. And then they must make their decision somewhere probably in early June, thereabouts, maybe maybe towards mid-June, but it must be made so that the employers have sufficient time to ensure that whatever the increase is, 
starts in the first pay, uh, full pay period uh, in July. So the election on May the 21st provides a little window for a Labor government to make a submission. And we don't know yet whether uh, they... Uh, we, I think the balance is that the, if they are elected, they will make a submission. I think that's where it's pointing. And that, it, that there's no big deal about that. Every government has been doing that. The question is, will they put a number in, in the light of things as they are unfolding? Will they back up the 5.1% um, logical statement from uh, Anthony Albanese as the leader uh, with uh, putting that number into the submission? Because remember, all he said was that if that was what the increase was, then Labor would support it. Okay. Um, so that, so then the second thing, of course, is that uh, the interesting thing about the Greens' submission is that there has the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, my old union, um, has put in a submission, uh, basically. Uh, without naming the green submission, but arriving at the same conclusion that the you know the where the minimum wage should be taken to is to sixty percent of median wages, and it's saying that because it's producing evidence of how much the minimum wage has fallen relative to the median wage, and this that is a very interesting development in terms of the future, the next, if you like, 12 months to three or four years about a discussion in the union movement about how it ought to, what sort of a claim should it pursue? The same old, same old? Or something like what the AMWU now is saying, which adds meat to what the Greens were saying? Well, reminding people that medium uh, medium wage is actually a calculation between the extremes of both sides, right? It's the midway point between, you know, the so-called highest wages in the economy and the lowest. That's right. And the, uh, if I remember correctly, for men, that's at about $1,540 a week, something like that. And for women, it's less because there's a gender pay gap. Um, at around $1,380, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, and so 60% of that would be around uh, $925 for men and 820, 838, 830-odd for women. So uh, that's what's at stake as we go into the post-election period um, especially if Labor forms government in some way or another. Now, the other part of all this, however, and the complication, which we're all going to have to deal with, whether we like Labor governments or not, or like any form of Labor government or not, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I, I want to see a change of government, put the Liberals last, for goodness sake. Um, the uh, the uh, Is what the Reserve Bank said, in addition, in, in elaborating last week when it increased interest rates from 0.1% uh, uh, to 0.35%. In the same statement, it said it forecast that current growth, as 
gross domestic product is the common measure, will fall from about 4.25% this year to about 2% 12 months later. Now, that's what they said. And uh, it's hard to work out. They don't actually provide um, much evidence in the statement about that, but they're fairly assertive about it. They do acknowledge that they, you know, there's, there's a margin of error there, uh, and uh, so it could be worse than could be worse than two percent. That's their forecast from looking all sorts of economic data from reserve bank. Uh, reserve banks in other parts of the world, their statistical data, OECD, and then looking at the Australian Bureau of Statistics to da data. Now, <coughs> in other parts of the world, in Western developed countries, there are already early signs of a recession happening now. And a lots of discussion and almost certainty that some of those advanced economies are drifting, it will be in recession or serious downturn, it's a matter of degree, uh, in the next six to 12 months. So we have our own Reserve Bank predicting a halving of growth. Now, that is very serious, and it points to this reality. But if we have a Labor government, or a Labor government dependent upon the Greens and some other configuration, then it is now predicted that they will inherit a collapse in growth, the seeds of which are in the period in which the LNP have been managing the economy. Wow, that doesn't surprise me. In other words, the system itself has its own dynamic. But the way in which the Morrison government, the Fraudenberg and so on, have been managing the current regrowth period is setting things up for a collapse in growth, a halving in growth, maybe slightly better than that, and it might be even worse than that. That's what they're saying. God, that's horrendous. And so those other sorts of banks who are stretched to the eyeballs, food banks, who are already overwhelmed are going to be under even more overwhelmed and homelessness is going to be not just bad but getting worse that's what and the reserve bank government didn't give much thought to any of that when he made his decision last week the fair work commission however will be looking at all of that because the employers are saying two things, that there should be those that are saying, yes, there should be an increase in wages are also still talking about deferring the start dates so much later than July, which means that they become more effectively a pay cut for the lowest paid. On top of that, the Reserve Bank is creating a climate of thought whereby those with neoliberal approaches to understanding the economy, like themselves, in the Fair Work Commission, are more likely to make a decision that imposes another pay cut. That's outrageous. That's, that's what I think is going on there. Um, the, 
the governor said a couple of other things which I think are very useful for listeners to be aware, aware of. He actually said in his statement that the way these things happen is the governor makes his statement and it's in the form of a media release or the statement is produced as a media release. He then does a supplementary speech, which is available both in written and video-recorded form at the website. And then in addition, there is what is called a chart pack in which there's all sorts of graphs and figures and diagrams and so on about the data that the bank relies on. Now, this is where it gets interesting about a couple of things, including wages. The decision itself was intended to dampen demand, slow down spending, put downward pressure on spending. Well, low-income people can't. (laughs) Every dollar they spend is not discretionary. They have to spend it. There is no solid evidence that spending is the problem, that demand is the problem, either whether it's for low-income people, high-income people, or whether it's for the spending in the form of physical investments to make the production part of the economy up to date technologically up so to date. So why did they do that? There's no evidence for that. There's no, there's no evidence that that's the problem. Rather, the problem is on the, what is called the supply side, about, about the supply of goods and especially goods coming from overseas because of the breakdown of some global supply chains, and then the, shortage, the supply of low-wage manual labour, especially in the farming sector. So it's a supply problem. Yet they have their focus... And justification is that we need to damp, start to keep a control on demand. So why did they do it? Why, why have they done this? Is this so that they're financializing the market and the people who want to gain interest uh, rates on loans are putting their ore in or something? Well, the answer lies in a couple of other things he said. He also said, and this is to justify the decision, and this is about trying to argue that business investment is picking up, right? He said that, that business investment is picking up. At the, the chart pack produced by his own star says the opposite. It shows business investment falling, and I've been writing about that now for a couple of years. You can look at it in a couple of ways, and I won't go into all that right now, but the important thing is that if you look at the relevant charts, Business investment, at best, is stagnant. It, but its overall trend for a while has been downwards. And it's not going back to where it needs to be. There's no sign of that at this stage. Now, that might change. In fact, sometimes it does change in, in, a, in a recovery from a downturn. Yeah, but, but the policy levers that the LNP government has been doing has been encouraging people to invest in property. And it's one of the reasons for why we've got ridiculous uh, prices of uh, for houses, etc. Yeah, well, you know, over the last few years, the Reserve Bank governor himself has saying, been saying exactly that because he's been pleading for corporations to start investing in productive investment, that is machinery and equipment, that modernises Australia's production capacity, particularly in manufacturing. Well, he hasn't been getting... They haven't been doing it. They, you know, they're, they're lost in action, so to speak. They're, in a, in a, put it another way, their patriotism doesn't go to actually investing in the country. It goes in other directions. 
The third thing he did was he claimed, he said that wages were going upwards and that that was the first he was saying, in effect. Where? Uh, <laughs> I'll come to that. He was saying, in effect, that, you know, we have the first signs that wages will uh, force prices up, right? So you, it, where do you get the evidence for that? Because there's none. There's none from the usual sources and there's none in the chart pack. Well, we do know that the parliamentarians got a 30% pay rise. Yeah, and Keith, uh, and Keith Wyatt, the um, outgoing maybe minister, uh, minister in the government, he actually said that um, uh, 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 last week that politicians deserve an increase in pay. Um, he didn't say that much to my knowledge, but anyway, correct me if I'm wrong about that. But here's the, here's the clincher. What was the evidence that the governor relied upon to make the statement that wages were ticking upwards. He said the bank engaged in business liaison, in other words, made a few phone calls to some corporations to ask them what they were doing with wages. And some of them said, oh, we're paying higher wages for people. There was no data at all supplied for this. The bank used to have a business liaison unit that did that sort of thing in a relatively scientific way with a set of questions and collecting data. But that hasn't that unit hasn't been heard of for about five or six years at least. No one knows whether it still exists. Um, because when the when when uh, uh, when the when the governor made this claim that the, the bank's business liaison had worked out that the wages were now going up, um, uh, he didn't actually talk about his unit. He just talked about a process. You know, there was no so, so an old boys' or network or something. So it's just you know, it has all of the characteristics of a con, of a way of pretending that the bank has got some uh, uh, tangible evidence for its decisions. When really, what it was doing was making something up, really to justify increasing the interest rates like they did. Not a very scientific approach, really. In, they could have gone to enterprise bargaining agreements for the last three months, for example, and looked at those. But what do we know? And the, the AMWU, in its submission to the Fair Work Commission, it points out that the number of... It reinforces that the trend in enterprise bargaining is still for fewer and fewer agreements and lower and lower outcomes, uh, and uh, and pointing out that um, you know there is a serious problem in enterprise bargaining being the primary form of achieving uh, overall class-wide improvements in wages. And we have to leave on there. Lots of things to think about. Uh, that's the end of the program. We've come to the end of the program. As I said, it all nicely tailed into each other. The fight for Gomorrah land uh, and uh, the uh, call for Santos to take its mitts off Gomorrah land. Uh, moving on to what the Greens, uh, Adam Band had to say about jobs and uh, equality. Moving on to... Uh, Kevin's uh, pithy dissection of the week, and this is the week that was, and a discussion with uh, John Sutherland about uh, general issue of standard of living and the uh, policy levers that appear to be uh, running a ship that's 
running all over the place <laughs> as we lead into the next election, uh, which is next Saturday. Uh, coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents, and I thought we might go out with uh, Birdie King, How Long Blues. <laughs> G'day, I'm Warwick Thornton, the writer-director of Samson and Delilah, and you're listening to... You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.